It's great to see you. Um, sometimes you have a really unproductive week. Um, I don't know if, if that happens to you this week. I feel like I've had to work really hard to get anywhere. It's not that I've not enjoyed studying this passage, but by Friday, I didn't really have anything to say to you at all. So I j- just really unproductive, uncreative, and um, I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just not quite firing all four cylinders. Or, or is it a six-cylinder engine? I've got, I'm not sure, V6 maybe. Uh, but but I, I'm thankful. Um, I went into my room and prayed and said, Lord, you better give me something because uh, I've got to feed these people on Sunday from your word. And, um, well, you'll tell me at the end whether God's answered that prayer. <laughs> so, But I, I feel a bit more comfortable than I did on Friday. Now, people learn in different ways, don't they, we're told. Um, some people are, uh, like to learn things, I suppose, by repeating. Some people are what we might call visual learners who learn through pictures. You, you understand the, the difference sometimes. I suppose people can do both. I want to begin today by appealing to your creativity, your imagination, by giving you a kind of word picture. Um, I have two quotations to give you. And uh, so let, let me give you the first one. Theologians use a big word to describe the coming of God into this world in human form in the person of Jesus. Theologians use a big word to describe that, and the word is incarnation. You've maybe heard of that word. Sometimes in Christmas carols we sing about God incarnate, God becoming human. Well, the word incarnation is in this quote. I came across this quote this week. The doctrine of the incarnation is that through the womb of Mary, the world we all know about, that is to say the world out there, came in. Through the pitiless slab, through the pitiless walls of the world, God punched a hole. And he punched the hole and he came in. The ideal became real. The impossible became possible. The supernatural became natural. The metaphysical became physical. More than that, the powerful became powerless. The invulnerable became vulnerable. The unapproachable became huggable. The immense became a single cell. The unassailably remote became God with us. That's the incarnation. There is nothing like that. Nobody has ever made a claim like that. I love that picture. In the incarnation, God has punched a hole through the pitiless walls of this world. Sometimes in films you see a great big tank comes smashing through a brick wall or some speeding car comes right through it into the foreground and makes a dramatic entrance. The incarnation in becoming human, Jesus is doing exactly that. And he isn't just punching the hole through. You don't just see his fist poke through. He's punching through it and getting rid of all the debris and climbing through the hole and coming from another world into our world. One of the questions obviously is what difference has the birth of Jesus made? If God has smashed through the wall and entered our world, why are things still so bad? There are still wars, poverty, famine, sickness. From some perspectives, it perhaps feels a little bit like, God, if, uh, God has God really smashed through the wall and come in? The second quote, did I tell you there were two? Did I say that? I meant to say that. The second quote, I did, okay, thank you. The second quotation I found, quite by accident, some lyrics of a song 
that I came across this week. I, don't, I, I was asking one of my kids whether they knew this group, or American or Canadian, I think. Obscure group. I came across these lyrics. This group is not a Christian group or, or anything like that. But the first paragraph of a song that this group sang expresses something very profound. Here, here it is. Here we sit inside our rooms with four walls and with our doom. And will it come? And will it save? Will love come bursting through the walls? In this song, the artist deeply feels like that somehow the walls will dissolve and disappear. The song goes on, the walls will surely fall away. The hope in the song is that in the end, love will win. And it's more a hope than a realistic expectation. That's the dream of the song. Not competition, not people fighting, not people messing things up, but the walls falling away and love winning. I think it's true to say that we humans have always had this sense that there is something else, something more, something beyond us. And this is a great example here of a non-religious song that contains deeply religious, spiritual longings. But I think this song portrays something even more profound than that. There's an acknowledgement here with these writers that somehow inside our world there's something wrong. And that what we need is for love to come bursting in. That's, that's what the song says. Will love come bursting through the walls? It's implying that there's something more out there that is better than what we have in here. Amazing that someone who's not even a religious person could write lyrics like that. So here's the picture that I wanted to get. I said I was appealing to your creativity, your imagination. In the, in the incarnation, this is what the incarnation is all about. Love has come bursting through the walls. God has punched a hole in these pitiless walls of the world, broken through and brought something of his other good world into this fading, broken one. And love does win in the end. Love comes bursting through the walls. Uh, we've been thinking about the Christmas story from the perspective of Matthew's Gospel. We called this series The Promised King. We looked at his credentials in chapter 1. And then last week we were looking at his identity in the second half of chapter 1. And if you didn't catch those talks, they're, they're both online if you want to listen in and catch up. Today we're going to get into chapter 2. And we're going to think about the promised king in terms of his impact. Um, sorry, I've gone on one there. I'll leave that for a minute. Here, here's, here's the deal. Matthew here in these chapters, I think, is trying to show us something of what the world that Jesus was born into was like. Do you get that? Do you know that in this chapter, there's no singing? No singing. The singing in Luke's gospel when Jesus is born. In this chapter, no singing. There's a brutal king who is greedy for power and we'll hear as we go through it the sound of women crying for their children who are no more. The pitiless walls of this world. But Matthew is also showing us something of what the love and power of God look like. Love is bursting through those very walls. And it doesn't look perhaps like we would expect it to look. The almighty God becomes vulnerable and lives in obscurity. And he takes everything that is thrown at him, catches it and transforms it 
and hands it back recreated and redeemed. That's the story from Matthew's perspective here. I have three headings for you this afternoon to reflect on these ideas in terms of the impact of Jesus' birth. And you've seen the first one already because I gave you a sneak preview. The birth of Jesus, first of all, provokes a reaction. If chapter 1 has been asking the question, under the surface, there's always a subtext, isn't there? In chapter 1, the question is, who is he? Who is Jesus? Matthew's been trying to answer that. His credentials, his identity. When we get into chapter 2, the question's a slightly different one. The question in chapter 2 is not, who is he? But what did people do with him? How did people respond to him? For Matthew, the birth of Jesus is quite provocative. It is the kind of birth that demands a response. And I think Matthew, in this chapter, is asking you and me a question. Not so much, who is he? But what are you going to do with him? How, how will you respond to him? Matthew is asking you and I to decide which side, if you like, we're on. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus asked his disciples privately, what's the gossip? Who do people say that I am? And they gave him a, few, they gave him a little survey of people's popular answers to that question. And then Jesus turns the light on them and says to them, and what about you? Who do you say I am? What the world that Jesus was born into does with Jesus tells us a great deal about what that world is really like. And how different people in this passage respond to him is essentially a, a mirror of our own hearts too. What you do how you respond to Jesus says a lot about your own heart. And Matthew here deliberately contrasts the responses of King Herod and all the Jewish leaders and all the people with these mysterious magi who come in from the east. Here's the basic point. I'll give it to you at the start, okay? The basic point of what Matthew's saying here is, look how these foreigners come who know nothing and worship Christ with great joy as the promised king, while his own people, who should know better, reject him. That's the point of this chapter. The Magi come from the east knowing nothing really, and they worship Christ gladly, and the people who knew all about him go, yeah, whatever. What a contrast. And maybe this is a mirror, not just of what the world is like, but also what our own hearts are like. And the world is always like this. It's like, it was like this then, the world is like this now. So let's think about these different groups. First of all, King Herod. Um, the Herod here in this passage is Herod the Great who ruled as king under the Roman Empire from 37 BC to 4 BC and that, that means that Jesus wasn't born in year zero you know that already don't you that was because some guy later on did his calculations wrong well he didn't have the right information and he worked out the calendar wrong when, when the calendar changed Herod was not a pure Jew he was a half-Jew, but he converted to Judaism. And as you know, he ruled on behalf of the Roman Empire. And Matthew tells us that when these Magi arrived on their journey, so, well, we read it, chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, so this must have been before 4 BC, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
Not the one who was born to be king of the Jews, notice. The one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star rise in the east and we've come to worship him. What's King Herod's reaction? Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was troubled. I, I think often when we think of Jesus we tend to think in terms of what we will lose. It is almost as if Jesus threatens us If I think about Jesus too much, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose my independence, my authority. He's not having my throne. I'm going to run my own life. Thank you very much. No one else is going to do that for me. The very name of Jesus seems to trouble people. Have you noticed that? You're just talking about Jesus in everyday life. And people, it's like... There's a very famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon who lived in the 1800s. And he said this about Herod. Those people are in a sad state to whom the saviour is a trouble some like Herod are troubled because they fear that they shall lose position and honour if true religion makes progress and many people have an undefined dread that the presence of Jesus will deprive them of pleasure or call them to make unwilling sacrifices And Herod here is so troubled. He's the king of the Jews has been born. Hang on a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. That sounded a bit like Jungle King, that didn't it? I'm the king of the jungle. I'm the king of the Jews. Some upstart. Who, who, who on earth is this? And Herod is the man who pretends to worship Jesus while really wanting to kill him. He's a total two-faced weasel, isn't he? The, ma- the Magi, he says to them, go and make a careful search in Bethlehem. And when you've found him, come back and tell me so I can come with you and worship him too. With my knife in my back pocket so I can slit his throat. What a weasel. Pretending to worship while in his heart he's wanting to get rid of Jesus altogether because he's a threat. What about the religious leaders? When King Herod heard this, verse 3, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Christ to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? I want to talk about the religious leaders being apathetic. Why do I say apathetic? Well, in verse 5, they give the right answer. Why do they give the right answer? I'll tell you why they give the right answer. Because they know their Bibles. These religious leaders are not ignorant or stupid. They know the Old Testament scriptures. They know the prophet Micah, where there's a messianic prophecy of the Saviour being born in Bethlehem. And what do they do when Herod says, where's the Christ to be born? Immediately maybe with no small degree of terror, they say to Herod, in Bethlehem, in Judea, my Lord. Because in the prophet Micah it says, and from verse 6, they quote, and Matthew quotes it for us, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd, who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. 
One writer says this, the failure of the scribes to believe was not due to their ignorance. Israel knew precisely where the king of the Jews would be born, but it was pagan foreigners that worshipped him first. Although they could say immediately where the Messiah would be born, they apparently did nothing about the report that the Magi brought. They knew their Bibles. They knew all the right answers. Their theology was sound. But they did nothing. Isn't it striking that not one of them goes with the Magi to Bethlehem? Does that not surprise you? These important people from the east come to Jerusalem and say, where's the king of the Jews been born? We saw his star rise in the east. And they said, yeah, it's in Bethlehem, go everyone. <laughs> we're, we're a bit busy. Not a single one of them goes with the Magi. They look respectable. They know the right answers. But do they care? There is a trajectory in Matthew and these leaders eventually erupt like volcanoes with anger against Jesus and end up having him killed. But here at this point, they don't give a monkey's. And the reason they don't give a monkey's is because at this point, it doesn't cost them anything, does it? They're just apathetic. We don't care. It makes no difference to us. We're busy. Jerusalem's busy. Christ has been born. Who cares? Whatever. Life goes on. When Jesus began to threaten their position, then their true hatred begins to boil over like Herod's did here. There's a warning there for us, isn't there? It's interesting that apathy can turn so easily into violence in the end. Sometimes we too can look respectable. The truth is, we haven't yet realised who Jesus is and the demands he makes of us. And when that choice does come home to us, our reaction often can be to get angry and to hate him too. What about the people? I don't want to skip over the people here. In verse 3, it says that King Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Um, so I just want to talk briefly about them Matthew has already told us in chapter 1 via the angel talking to Joseph that Jesus has come the angel said to Joseph give him the name Jesus, why? because he will save his people from their sins his people these are his people these are his fellow Jews to whom all the promises were made. And yet when this news comes by the Magi, the whole city is troubled. Why are they not setting party poppers up and putting bunting up? Why, why are they not cheering and saying, Hey, the Christ has been... The Christ... They're troubled. You wonder why the whole city was troubled. Maybe they know what Herod's like and what he's going to do next. And maybe they're frightened because he is paranoid and violent and brutal. We'll get back to Herod in a bit. So maybe they're disturbed because you don't want to tell Herod that, mate. King of the Jews has been born. You do not want to go there. Maybe that's why they're troubled. I don't know. I... You almost get the sense that they're past caring. They've waited so long. They've been oppressed for so long. They've been without hope for so long. They have thousands of years of promises. They own the Old Testament scriptures. They're looking forward to them when the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, they go, oh, they're just 
they, they're past hope, aren't they? They're tired. When the promise actually comes true, they don't seem to have the strength to believe it. Do you ever feel like that? Herod was threatened and became violent. The religious leaders are apathetic and don't care. And the general population are so past hope that it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And then you have the Magi. What a contrast. These Magi, there's no doubt, they're a bit mysterious. Many commentators believe that these Magi came from Persia. So, our dear Iranian friends in this church have something in common with these guys. They came from what we would call Iran. They travelled to Jerusalem. In history, the title Magi has been used positively and negatively. I was trying to think of like a job that sometime in history everyone thought, yeah, that's a noble job to do, that gradually became like despised. And um, I don't know, well, Magi is one of them anyway. If you can think of another, see me afterwards. There were times when Magi were considered as noblemen, advisors to kings, thoughtful, religious, upright men, highly skilled in diplomacy, philosophy, science, And then there are other times in history where the word magi becomes associated with tricksters, conmen, magicians, sorcery. So depending on where in history you read the word magi, it can be very negative or it can be very positive. I I think it's pretty obvious that Matthew is using this word here in a very positive context. Whatever the history, it seems like these men using the light they had, perhaps guided in some way by God, had come to the conclusion that a great king has been born. A great new era has begun. We can speculate on whether the star was a natural phenomena or some kind of supernatural thing. Matthew doesn't seem to spell that out. It seems like his main point is that these men came to worship Christ from a long way away. Herod did not want Christ to cost him anything. And he was willing to kill him for Jesus not to cost him. These men travel hundreds of miles and bring gifts worthy of a king it costs them a lot doesn't it and look at verse 10 one of the most understated verses in the Bible as they go to Bethlehem it says when they saw the star they were overjoyed I love that word overjoyed I mean you can be joyful but to be overjoyed it's like Matthew is straining language here to say they weren't just happy. They were really happy. They were very happy. They were deliriously happy. When they saw the star, they were skipping. They were throwing a party. We've been planning this for months, guys. This whole journey. Get your gifts ready. We're going to see the new king. What a contrast to Herod. Smarmy, two-faced weasel of a man trying to stick a knife in. These men are like, this is the biggest day of our lives. Herod is furious. These guys are having a party. One writer says, despite their pagan background and powerful influence in the Persian courts, these Magi recognize and worship the Christ child for who he is. And despite his role as legally installed ruler of Israel and his professed conversion to Judaism, Herod rejects the newborn king 
and plots to destroy him. He fears that this young boy will threaten his royal position and authority. Can I say something to you, Christians here today? We should never judge people in terms of where they are at in relation to Jesus. Sometimes the people who look the furthest away are the nearest. And the ones who are the closest are actually the ones who are the furthest away from them. King Herod, the religious elite, they should have all known better. They were near and yet far away. And these pagan magi, with the little light they have, are filled with joy to come and worship Christ. One more thing as well. Isn't their faith incredible? Does that strike you? God smashes through the wall and comes in. And when they get there, there's this poor little northern poor family. This child wasn't born in a palace. The parents aren't rich. They're in Bethlehem. Some writers say that Bethlehem would maybe had 1,500 or 2,000 people live there. And this entourage from Iran rolls into town with gifts. Can you see these magi scratching their saying, oh man, the sat nav must have got that wrong. What postcode did you say King Herod gave us? Well, are we in the right place? This seems like a farm. What's going on? Matthew tells us that on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense and myrrh. What incredible thing! Did it look like God had smashed through the wall and come in? Maybe they could tell that Herod was a monster. And what an encouragement to Mary and Joseph of God's purposes with them as if they needed any more encouragement. Do you know it says in the Old Testament that kings would come bringing gifts from afar. They knew their Bibles too. Imagine sitting there in the house where they were. They're not in the stable at this point. And there's a knock on the door and they open the door and these oddly dressed noblemen from Persia at the door we've come to worship your child. Mary and Joseph must be gone. <laughs> Listen, this is a little visual aid to show us, all of us, what our reaction to Jesus ought to be. How about you this afternoon? What is your response to Jesus? Do you feel threatened? Do you not care? Do you feel too lost and beyond hope? I think we can tell a lot about a culture by what a culture does with Jesus. Do you know our, our culture thinks that Jesus is irrelevant? Jesus is too irrelevant to feel threatened by him. Our culture is too preoccupied with all sorts of other things to care about him. And perhaps past thinking that if there was a chance that God was real, he probably wouldn't be that interested in us anyway. And yet I, I suspect that under all of that, there is lurking deep longings. What did that writer sing? Here we sit inside our rooms with four walls and with our doom and will it come and will it save? Will love come bursting through the walls? These pagan magi somehow knew it and their joy and their energy was great. The Christ has been born.
Because they had three headings over, didn't they? That's just number one. So here's number two. Oh, I forgot about that slide. Never mind. I want to say this, secondly. The birth of Jesus is not just provocative. It is encouraging. Matthew is kind of asking us, what is this promised king like? The contrast here is that Jesus is not a king like Herod. He's not a king like this world's kings. And Matthew's answer is that although this world is so often a violent mess, it is a world that this king identifies with and participates in and sympathizes with. Isn't that encouraging? Let me show you. First of all, as soon as Jesus is born, people are trying to kill him. He was vulnerable. The Son of God becomes vulnerable. His parents are a poor peasant couple with the full force of an angry, brutal king bearing down on them. There's a very dramatic change in the narrative from, from these magi bringing treasures and gifts and the scene of joy and gladness to verse 13. When they had gone, I mean, the after party, you know, the morning after, the night before, this has been a scene of great joy. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The contrast is deliberate. The reader is taken from a scene of prostration and gift giving to a scene of danger and flight. Herod's brutality apparently was legendary. In the beginning of his reign, he was a very capable and efficient ruler. But as he grew older, he became increasingly paranoid. One writer, I'll, I'll just read this quote, Herod murdered his wife, Mariamne, his mother, Alexandria, his oldest son, Antipater, as well as his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Augustus, the Roman emperor, once said that it was more safe to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's a play on words because the word pig and son is very similar in the Greek. So Augustus Caesar was being a bit clever with his puns there. Imagine someone saying that's safer to be his pig than his son. Approaching his death, he knew he was going to die. Herod had a group of elite citizens in Jerusalem arrested and put in prison with orders that the moment he died, they too were to be killed so that some tears would be shed when he died. Imagine that. What a guy. Brutality. Secondly, Jesus wasn't just vulnerable. He was a refugee. This is very relevant to our modern culture, isn't it? The Son of God was an asylum seeker. On the run. A refugee. Egypt isn't a particularly safe place at the moment, but for many centuries, Egypt was the natural place for Jews to flee to. It was nearby. It was a very well-ordered Roman province. It was obviously outside Herod's jurisdiction. And according to the Roman writer Philo, writing in about 40 AD, its population included about a million Jews. Lots of earlier generations of Israelites, when they needed to flee, would flee south to Egypt. Jesus here, as no sooner is he born, then he's a refugee. But there's a third thing here. When, when they come back, we're not going to 
go through all of this passage, but when they came back, in, in verse 19, it says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared again in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. Basically, Herod's death. The slight problem was that the land was then divided into three and the son of Herod, three sons, one of the sons who took over Judea was worse than he was, Archelaus. And when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning Judea, he thought, I'm not going back there. And they moved north to Nazareth in Galilee. The fact of Nazareth obscurity comes out in John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, there's a man called Philip who finds Jesus and he goes to tell his friend Nathaniel. And I wrote down what Nathaniel said here. He goes to his friend and he says, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom all the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's effectively going to tell his friend, We found the Christ. And Nathaniel replies, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It's like Jesus coming from Barnsley. It, can I say that? I don't mean to be offensive to anyone from Barnsley, but the point I'm making is that the religious elite lived in Jerusalem. They're in the capital. Nazareth is a northern backwater town. Coming from Nazareth, you'd be a country bumpkin. You'd have a strange accent. No wonder when people spoke about Jesus, they're like, Nazareth? Can the Christ... He, he can't be the Messiah coming from Nazareth. You've got to be kidding. The scripture quotation at the end as well is very unusual. Verse 23. Matthew has been quoting scripture all the way through this. He gets to the end and he says, so, what was fulfilled, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. The problem with that is that that quote isn't anywhere in the Old Testament. And we don't know whether it should have had quotation marks around it either, because Greeks didn't use them. But it's interesting that in all the other quotations, Matthew says, what the Lord said through the prophet, even names Jeremiah. There's another quote from Hosea. There's a quote from Isaiah. This one, he says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. What seems to be happening here is that Matthew is like summing up his sense of the Old Testament and saying, you know the Old Testament is all about this, don't you? When the Old Testament promises that the Messiah would come, you know, don't you, that he would be a country bumpkin. That's really what he's saying. He was, he'll be a Nazarene. People are going to be offended by his rough background. You know, in Isaiah, it says that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says there that we esteemed him lightly. People looked at him and didn't think, whoa, there's the Christ. His accent was strange. His background was rough. He was so poor that no one would believe that he could be the Messiah. Listen, Matthew is subtly asking the question here. What is this king like? This king who has come from another world and smashed through the wall and entered our world, what is he like? While the political king, Herod, is paranoid and cursing and threatening, here is God's real king. Choosing a life of poverty, threat, Danger and pain. This is not an accident. This king has swapped the courts of heaven for this. He swapped the courts of heaven to talk like a northerner. He swapped the courts of heaven to be a refugee. This week I came across a great quote in um, 
I think one of my friends put this on Facebook. This is a quote from a book called The Humans by an author called Matt Haig. I've never read the book, but so I have no idea if it's any good. But this is a quote from this book. Uh, Matt Haig writes, The world is increasingly designed to depress us. Happiness isn't very good for the economy. If we were happy with what we had, why would we need any more? How do you sell anti-aging moisturiser? You make people worry about ageing. How do you get people to vote for a political party? You make them worry about immigration. How do you get them to buy insurance? By making them worry about everything. How do you get them to have plastic surgery? By highlighting their physical flaws. How do you get them to watch a TV show? By making them worry about missing out. How do you get them to buy a new smartphone? By making them feel like they're being left behind. To be calm becomes a kind of revolutionary act. To be happy with your own non-upgraded existence. To be comfortable with our messy human selves would not be good for business. It's very profound, isn't it? Jesus left heaven to become a country bumpkin in Nazareth. Why? Why does God not just stop all the trouble and pain (coughs) immediately? Well, whatever his reasons might be, I want to say to you this afternoon that the truth is that he knows your pain. He has been here in this world and faced all the things that we do, that you do, that I do. God has smashed through the wall and come in. He is not distant. He is not in an ivory tower. He knows. He is very near. He is not unmoved or uncaring. He is not unwilling to come down to our level. He is a saviour who feels what you and I feel. Vulnerable, refugee, obscure. Herod was a monster. But isn't he beautiful? Isn't he desirable? The Lord Jesus is a king who feels what we feel. I've said to you before, do you know that there is a man in heaven even now his name is Jesus and I've given you this illustration before you know that when you have a, a grand piano with all the strings on it if you, if you pluck one of the strings I don't know I'm not a pianist let's say you pluck the string that's middle C and it vibrates if there was another piano do you know what would happen the string on middle C on that piano would start to vibrate as well there's a man in heaven who is touched with the same feelings that we have and when the strings of our hearts are vibrating there's a man there whose heart resonates with ours he feels what we feel isn't that incredible so the birth of Jesus is provocative and demands decision the birth of Jesus is encouraging last of all the birth of Jesus delivers everlasting hope 
Now, Matthew is asking, what does this king achieve? And it's all here in seed form. And we'll try and, we'll try and be quick here. I think I want to say two or three things here. Jesus offers real hope. First of all, I want to say this. Jesus is the kind of king we dream of rather than fear. Unlike Herod, selfish, greedy, power-hungry, brutal and violent, corrupt. In chapter 1, the angel said, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then in chapter 2, Matthew quotes from the prophet Micah. And he says there, from you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler, a king, who will be a shepherd of my people. What a thing for Jesus to be, a king who is a saviour and a shepherd. A ruler who has power and courage and ability and yet compassion and tenderness. He's the kind of king we dream of. Secondly, he's the kind of king who fulfills every good promise. One of the most striking things about Matthew's account here, I've said this before, we're going to say this again next week at our carol service, is the way Jesus is portrayed as the fulfillment of everything that's gone before, all the way through these chapters. So this happened so that the prophet was fulfilled. It's like Jesus is portrayed as the true Israel. Do you notice how his life parallels Israel? Israel, where did they go? From the promised land down into Egypt. Then they came back into the promised land. Where does Jesus go when he's born? He starts in the promised land, he goes down to Egypt, he comes back. Even his life parallels the life of a nation. I wish I had more time to spend on that. But I want to pick up on verse 18. Just a little reference, we'll just pick one. This is the reference to Rama. What is going on there? So Herod brutally kills all the boys in Bethlehem under two years old. Bethlehem wasn't a big place. Commentators think that might have been 20 or 30. Not hundreds or thousands. 20 or 30. But then Matthew says this was to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said about Rama. This reference to weeping in Rome is very significant. Rachel was the wife of Jacob and she is kind of a symbolic mother of all of Israel. She wept once when her two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, were seemed lost in Egypt. Remember that story? Joseph went to Egypt because his brother sold him as a slave and then they left Benjamin there as collateral Rachel well it was Jacob actually who said my son is no more she's kind of the symbolic mother of Israel she was buried near Rama and many hundreds of years later her descendants were carried off into exile and they were gathered to begin the journey at Rama like a massive fire drill the Babylonian come on round them up the fire drill happened at Rama and whose grave is at Rama Rachel's and what the prophet Jeremiah is almost saying is Rachel would be not turning in a grave she would be weeping in a grave not to lose Benjamin and Joseph but to lose whole generations of her symbolic children and here Matthew quotes from that very chapter in Jeremiah to express something of the horror of what is happening Rachel now weeps again not for an exile but because King Herod is brutally massacring innocents 
The interesting thing about the passage in Jeremiah is that that whole chapter, Jeremiah 31, is a chapter of hope. And the only verse in that chapter, really, that is miserable is this one. A voice is heard in Rama, Rachel weeping for her children. God goes on to say, don't cry. The world will not always be like this. There is a day coming when all of this pain will be over and Rachel and all other mothers will cry no more. Matthew sees in that prophecy the beginning of hope, not just for Rama, but for the world. Later on in Jeremiah 31, let me just read this. This is what God says through the prophet, related to Rama. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God And they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This baby, this king, has been born to start a new covenant that is way better than the old covenant that got broken. And in this covenant, God promises to deliver forgiveness of sins and to put his spirit in people's hearts. He promises to be near, not far away. And lastly, we'll close with this. He's the king that no one can stop. I once heard the story of a missionary, I think it was in New Zealand. I might have told you this story before. Someone didn't like what the man was preaching. And it was a rural agricultural society. So this person who didn't like the missionary, one day, grabbed a potato, put it in his pocket, went to the guy's house, stood in the drive, and threw the potato through the man's window, smashed his window. What do you do with that? Threw a potato through his window. I'll tell you what the missionary did. He cleaned up the mess, he replaced his window, but he took the potato and he planted it. And he grew a whole sackful of potatoes. And a few months later, he went round to the man's house, knocked on his door and said, remember that potato you threw through my window? I grew you some more. Here's a sackful. In many ways, this sums up the Christian gospel. Jesus is born into this world. He smashes through the wall, the pitiless wall, and comes in. And this world does, does its best, not just to smash his windows, but to smash his life. Here is a world that does its worst. And do you know what Jesus does? He catches all of it. Transforms it into something good. And hands it back as if it was new again. All of this hostility reaches a climax, doesn't it? Later on in Matthew, when Jesus is condemned to die. The courts of this world consider this Christ to be worth nothing. Crucify him. Crucify him, they cried. Just get rid of him. We will not have this man to reign over us as our king. But this king 
catches all of it. Even catches death itself. He catches their hate. He catches their rebellion. He catches their venom. He catches it, absorbs it, and throws back love and life and a new start. He died and then rose again. He absolutely smashed it, didn't he? They tried to smash him. And while they were crucifying him, he's dying to save them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of a king is this? Love has burst through the pitiless walls of this world. But it is not a love that fights like this world loves to fight. It is a love that dies for rebels like you and me who don't deserve it. He shares and feels our pain for sure. He's the king who enters into all of that. But he also takes on his shoulders our shame, our guilt, our sin. He dies in our place. He catches all of the rubbish that we throw at him, cleans it and hands it back new. Matthew is showing us what Jesus is like. The contrast with Herod is obvious, isn't it? But he's showing us too that Jesus comes to deliver. He is the saviour, the shepherd to a world that doesn't want him. Jesus offers salvation, forgiveness. And Matthew also is showing us, showing you, showing me that the birth of this promised king requires a response. What will you do with Jesus? Will you fear him? Will you ignore him? Or will you treasure him and be overjoyed? Oh, man.